Okay, let's turn to Revelation 21. Uh, we're wrapping up our uh, mini-series uh, for Advent, which uh, we kind of stayed with the, th- the idea of Jesus as the light of the world, uh, but we looked primarily uh, during this time in terms of uh, the promises that were given in the Old Testament, and now we're seeing kind of the, the culmination of all of those promises as Jesus is the eternal light this morning. Um, there are so many things that we could focus on, and just as I sat here, I thought of our um, torn up and destroyed parking lot and thought, you know, that would make a great illustration for, uh, you know, the streets of gold. Not that we're going to have streets of gold out there, but one day soon that parking lot will not be uh, a sm- the site of a small, small skirmish. That's what it looks like out there. Not really a war zone, but a small skirmish. So anyway, uh, Revelation 21, uh, verses 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word that we might know that there is joy in your presence that we might know that there is a joy greater than the joy we seek in this world. So, to have that joy, it is vital that we understand and believe your word. We need your spirit to illuminate the word so that we can understand it. We need your spirit to work in our hearts and minds that we would believe and treasure what your word says. So fill us with this lasting joy and this lasting hope this morning. In accordance with your word, we ask this in the name of Jesus, who died for your joy and for ours. Amen. I love my wife, but sometimes watching movies with her is hard. Because one of the things that Amy wants, does uh, on a fairly consistent basis when we watch movies is say to me, what's going to happen next? And I'm like, dear, you have to watch. And sometimes she asks this even though I haven't seen the movie. So I'm not sure what she expects out of me. But it's not limited to her watching movies, uh, her desire to know what's coming next. It's also when she reads novels. Because sometimes she'll flip to the end, see how it ends, but then go back and read the rest of the book. I don't understand that. Yet, we see that here, as we think of God's great story that began with the creation of all things, he gives us a glimpse of the end. I mean, in history, we haven't arrived there yet, but he gives us this peak. Unlike me, he answers the question, what's going to happen next? And gives an answer. Because we desperately need to know. Part of what my wife is asking usually when she asks, how does it end, is that idea of, Do all things end up right 
or do they continue in wrong? And here we see that all things will end up right with God's world, that he has made, that he guides, that he redeems. The big idea this morning is that Christ makes us dwell with God in what I'll call fearless righteousness. There are many threads we could grab from uh, Revelation 21 and 22, and I've focused on these three um, just because, well, we don't have all day now, do we? So we're going to focus on these three things. Um, But before we even get really into the text, I want us to remember one thing. And I was reminded of this one thing as I was getting ready to go to bed last night after some of the guys had left, and I was checking to see if the Patriots were going to be on today. And, the, and those of you who are Patriots fans, they're not. So, you know, don't worry, you're not going to miss anything. Okay? And on Fox, there was this show, and it had all of these people talking about the, uh, the promises, and, okay, from their perspective, the promises of a future temple in Jerusalem. Okay? So I'm sitting there, and I'm watching this, and it's like, they don't get it, do they? <laughs> they don't understand what has happened in Christ and what God has promised. The Old Testament promises that some people associate with a millennial kingdom in Israel are fulfilled in Revelation 21 and 22. Many would say, we looked last week at Isaiah 60, and many would say, oh, that's pointing to the, the, the last outpouring of the Spirit and the millennial uh, reign of Jesus on the earth among the Jews. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Don't you see where this is fulfilled? This is fulfilled in, in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. That doesn't have to do with an earthly temple. It has to do with the renewed heavens, the renewed earth, the cosmic renovation that happens in Jesus Christ upon his return. So we have to keep that in mind as we look at this text. Okay, First off, Christ will make us dwell in the presence of God. You see, John has this vision of Zion, the renewed Jerusalem. And I say uh, renewed because that word new that we find at the very beginning of this chapter uh, is not new in time, but kind of new in character and quality. So this is a renewed Jerusalem. This is a better version than the other one ever was. This is the perfect version that the original was pointing to. Okay. We see as well, not from what the text we're looking at, but the beginning of chapter 21, that, of course, God brings it down from heaven. It's not something that man is able to create, man is able to accomplish. People strive to create utopia on earth, and all of those visions usually fall flat and uh, end in exploitation and destruction. That's not what's going on here. God is bringing this down. When we think of cities in that day, there were usually temples in most cities, and those temples were usually in the center of those cities because that was their God, and therefore life was to revolve around them, and the placement of the temple was to be important for that purpose. It was, it was for them to remember that life was all about the service of their God. And typically, the temple was the largest or the highest building so that you could see it from almost anywhere in the city, know where you were, and be reminded of what life was all about. Even in America in its founding days, we see this in Europe as well, after the advent of Christ, we see the largest buildings used to be cathedrals and churches. 
They used to be in the center of town where all the people would gather, and usually the spires would reach higher than any other building in, in the city. Now, it's bank buildings. Stuff associated with money, wealth, accumulation of wealth. See, the center of, li- of our lives in, in America and other parts of the world has shifted away from the worship of God, but to the worship of money. And it's revealed in, in the fact of what is the most prominent thing you see in a city. Okay, let's, let's go back from that little rabbit trail. But temples were the center of these cities. If we begin in, in Genesis 1, what we ought to see is that creation is viewed as sort of a cosmic temple in which humanity was placed in order to worship the Lord. Why would you say something as crazy as this, Steve? Psalm 78, for instance. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. And so there's this connection between creation and temples that take place in Scripture. Greg Beale talks about this at length in some of his books, and I just want to this one sentence, I think, sums it up very well. Israel's small temple was understood to be a microcosm of the entire heaven and earth, which was one massive cosmic temple in which God dwelt. Okay? Think about that, the Garden of Eden for a moment. Okay? Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, okay, uh, now, the temples of other gods usually had an idol in them. And here, in a sense, in the God's temple, there wasn't an idol, but a living image of God meant to represent him to the rest of creation. And they were to bring everything else. To, they were to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and rule it, uh, rule it for him. In other words, they were to bring it all into submission to him, and they were to cultivate all of it as this glorious temple of God. And that he dwelt in it, and we see even in, even in Genesis 3 that he had fellowship with them in a way that you and I haven't had fellowship with God. God dwelt in the, in the creation that he built as a temple for himself. And so the temple of Israel was a smaller version of this. Okay? The courtyard represented the earth where everybody could go. Okay, if you were if you were a Jew, there was a you could go to the courtyard. Okay, we see as well in some of the things of the of the courtyard. Um, there's the water that's there for the for the washing and the cleansing and other things that represent the fact that this is represents the earth as it is. The holy place and the way in which it was designed uh, was meant to represent the visible heavens. There are sources of light and there's uh, all sorts of sparkling gold and jewels that are there. So it represents the visible heavens, but only the priests could enter into the visible heavens. The holy of holies represented the invisible heavens where God himself dwells. That was where the mercy seat was, which was his footstool, was where God would be present. And only the high priest could go in there, and only once a year. But here's the thing, when he went in, he, he had to first 
light the incense so that the Holy of Holies would fill with smoke so that, in a sense, he wouldn't be able to see God for no man sees God and lives. With the coming of Christ, everything sort of changes. What John says here is astounding. It would be astounding to the ears of any Jew because John says there is no temple. And the, and the specific word that he uses is the one that represents the sanctuary, not the courtyard, but the, but the, holy, of ho- the, the holy place and the holy of holies. Okay? There is no temple. What kind of strange place is this where there is no temple? There's no building where you would go in order to worship. But he backs off a little bit, so to speak. He says, it's not all is wrong in this world, but in fact, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This is alluded to earlier in this text where it talks about the dwelling place of God has come down to men. God is going to dwell in a different and more profound way than he dwells in us in this new Jerusalem. He is the place where we are going to worship. God himself is the temple. Jesus himself is the great high priest. Jesus himself is the sacrifice, the lamb, as we see in Revelation 5. And so John assures us a couple of things with this with this bringing forth the Lord God Almighty as well as the Lamb, he's reminding us, as he does often in the book of Revelation, that Christ the Lamb is fully God together with the Father. They work together to accomplish their great purposes. But we see again that it is the power of the Lord God Almighty. Okay, Now that's a significant phrase. If you go to Revelation 4, Who is it that's seated on the throne? It's the Lord God Almighty. Who is it that is revealed in Revelation 5 as the one who is worthy to open the scrolls? The Lamb. So John is is carefully reminding these people of Revelation 4 and 5. The God who wills and the God who brings it to pass the Father, and the Son. For instance, we see here, Revelation 5, because this is going to be important to us. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so what John sees is connected to what Christ has accomplished, as declared in Revelation 5. What he sees is that the whole city has become the holy of holies. And and everyone is now a priest and has access, direct access, to the face of God in an unmediated presence. There's not going to be any more incense that has to get in the way to obscure our vision lest we see God. No more. You see that there is no more courtyard where, you know, the normal people can go. 
All right, there's no more courtyard. There's no more holy place. In fact, I think connected with this is the idea that there is no need for sun or moon to shine. Again, that idea of fulfillment of what we saw in Isaiah 60. But here's, here's kind of the, 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 the thing that kind of ties this together. The glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The glory is overwhelming. It replaces the sun. So bright, so radiant, so powerful is the glory of God. Now, we see glimpses of that in the Old Testament, particularly in two places. The dedication of the tabernacle, okay, which was the movable temple for the people in the wilderness, okay, which also was meant to represent the cosmos, the creation, and the dedication of the temple in Solomon's day. Let's look for a second. Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses, okay, Moses, one of the greatest men of the Old Testament, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses, who had seen the, the, the hind parts of God, Moses, who spoke to him face to face as if he was a friend, Moses, whose face would glow because he had been in the presence of God and he had to wear the veil over it, Moses couldn't go in. Such was the overwhelming glory of God in the tabernacle. 1 Kings 8 talks about the dedication of the, of the temple that Solomon built because his father David couldn't. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests, who were supposed to be in there, the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is now going to fill the city, the house of the Lord, as we see here in Revelation 21. An incredible thing that we can't even imagine. The glory of God is going to illuminate the whole city. The Lamb as a lamp is going to reveal the glory of God to satisfy our souls. And so the story ends with God's people dwelling in His immediate glorious presence. Secondly, Christ will make us walk in the light of righteousness. You see, since Adam's sin, we're all sinful. And as I've mentioned, sinful man cannot see God and live. But Jesus came to rectify that, to set it right, to enable us to see God and live. While we're sinners who are saved by grace, those of us like in this room right now, Okay, 
uh, we've been pardoned, we've been justified in Jesus Christ, but we have not yet been perfected and glorified in Jesus Christ. So we're sort of in this in-between phase. We have the already parts of salvation, but there are still some not yet aspects of our salvation that exist. We have access to the Father, as it says in Ephesians 2. We have access to Him through the Spirit because of the blood of Christ, but we don't see the Father, do we? If any of you has said you've seen the Father, um, aside from what Jesus meant when, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but actually you haven't seen Jesus either. So, okay. We have access through the Spirit, but we don't have immediate access. It's immediated access. It's almost like talking on the phone. Okay? You're not in the direct presence. You know, now... Through the glories of technology, like iPhones, Amy can FaceTime me from New York, and so we can see each other and we can talk and all that kind of stuff. I can see her glory, so to speak, you know, from far away. Right now, we don't see. But we hear through the Word, and we're able to pray, and He hears us. So there's access, but it's not full access. What we find in the New Jerusalem is that we're going to have full access. How is this possible? Well, all of the covenants pointed toward this purpose of Him being our God and we being His people. Some people like to focus on the land. If you want to focus on the land, yeah, the land's in there. And the land is fulfilled. (laughs) We have the new Jerusalem, which is bigger than the old Jerusalem. Far bigger, because there's far more people in it. Okay? But that's not the main point. He is our God. We are His people. All of the covenants also, in addition to that, called us to walk uprightly before Him as a response to His grace. Not to earn His grace, but as a response to His grace. Genesis 17 which is the the renewal of the covenant with with Abraham because Abraham has failed. Abraham Abraham tried to fulfill God's promises through the flesh, through with his uh, affair, so to speak, with Hagar and all that it complicated for the life of his family. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And then later he says, in terms of uh, this covenant seal and everything, and I will be their God. And so there you see those two themes. Blamelessness, I will be their God. We see it again, the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into them and will write it on their hearts. What's that about? Walking blamelessly and righteously with God because he's put it on our hearts. It's not on tablets of stone somewhere else. It's on our hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36. Again, the promise of the new covenant. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
Again, righteousness, holiness as a function of God's promise. And you will dwell on the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. We see this in the New Covenant. Ephesians 1, for instance. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, okay, so he's our God and we're his people, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why is it that in the New Jerusalem there'll be no more holy incense? Why is it that there'll be no more curtains that keep us from seeing the glory of God? It's because we will have been purified. No longer will we see him as sinners, but former sinners, glorified in his grace. We see here in, in uh, Revelation 22, it's, uh, sorry, 21, by its light will the nations walk. They will walk by the light of the glory of God. And so we see in two things here, we see again that global scope of Christ's work that's alluded to again, well, not alluded to, but declared in Revelation 5, but also that idea of walking in the light. We're walking in holiness because he is the light. He is holy. So there's both of those aspects uh, that are kind of going on in And so we see the ultimate end is that we are no longer justified sinners, but we are saints who are perfected in holiness. Don't you long for that? I know I do. I'm only 49 and I'm so weary of my sin, it makes me sick. I hate the wickedness that's in my heart. Because sometimes I love the wickedness in my heart. Oh, but we see here that we will no longer struggle with sin in thought, word, and deed. And it's going to be because He puts it all away, He brings to pass all of those not yet promises. So not only do we experience the pardon for our sins, but now we begin to experience the purification, the removal of sin in a complete instead of partial way. John declares again, clarify some of this, nothing unclean will ever enter. Now, we can hear that and go, oh boy, we're in trouble. Because <laughs> we know the uncleanness of our own hearts. But that's not what John is really getting at. He's getting at the point that the pollution of our sin will be fully washed away. Because that was a promise of the new covenant. We particularly see that in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. How's that for a word? Uncleannesses. Spell check didn't recognize that one this morning. Okay, but all of the ways in which you dirty yourself with your sin—these things that you think will bring life and pleasure and just bring destruction to your life. 
I will, I will clean you, sorry, you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. You see? The idols of our hearts, which drive most of our sin, they make us unclean too. But what a beautiful picture that we see here in Ezekiel 36 of this water that washes all the filth, all of the stains out of our garments, gone. And it's only the blood of the Lamb that can accomplish this that can ultimately and completely purify us once and for all and forever. So that now we are fit to gaze upon the unmediated glory of God in all of its fullness and not be destroyed, but to exalt in joy. As I talked about last week, as a man who sees his bride come down the aisle. Additionally, John says, those what will not come in, nor anyone who does what is detestable. And this word detestable can refer to the worst of sins, and it can refer specifically to idolatry. So again, tying back into what the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. Okay. Now, one of the other things that's going on in this book of Revelation is that we, we see that there are people who instead of follow the lamb, follow the dragon and the two beasts and the great prostitute. And the idea is that they do detestable things precisely because they worship the wrong things. And they are outside the city. They are not permitted within the city. All who followed the beast, as we see in Revelation 20, are in the lake of fire. But all who followed the lamb are in the city. Revelation 21, earlier up in verse 8, we see, But as for the cowardly, now, Who usually like ranks the cowardly with the rest of these things we're going to mention here? But it has that specific idea of they're afraid of man. They're afraid of the beast because they do not have the greater fear of Christ. So they're cowardly in that sense. They turn away from this profession of Christ at the slightest grumbling of those who hate Jesus. The faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. They're excluded from the city. But again, we have that idea of these liars or those who are false, as it says in our text this morning. In this context, it most likely refers to those, again, who profess Christ but compromised to stay safe. If you go back and you look 
in Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, that was one of the great problems that they experienced. Compromise with the gods of this world in order to stay safe. They thought that they could... They could follow Jesus and on the side kind of just do these things to, you know, placate the trade unions or the government or the various powers that they thought could destroy their lives. These are the people Jesus is talking about and John is talking about. (coughs) However, we see that the city is populated with those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. These are the people for whom Christ died. These are the people who are united with Christ. And so they get in on the basis not of their own goodness, but of Christ's perfect righteousness. Uh, Tomorrow my plan is to go hiking with Mark. And um, I found out one of the great benefits of going to this particular park with Mark, is that if I'm in the car with Mark, I get in free. (laughs) Because he gets in free. All right? Imagine for a second that that car is a picture of union. We're together. I don't deserve the benefits, but I get the benefits that are given to him. Okay? When it comes to Christ, we don't deserve the benefits. He does. But because by the power of the Spirit we are united to Him through faith, we receive not just Him, but all of His earthly and spiritual benefits. That's what's going on here. We're in and we see the beauty of God and are not destroyed Not because we're good, but because Christ was good for us. And so the story ends with all of us free from the power and presence of sin through Christ. Thirdly, briefly, Christ will vanquish all our fears. You see, after Adam sinned, he and Eve were afraid of one another. You know, before that, they were naked and unashamed, and they have the fruit, and all of a sudden they go, oh! Just like that. (laughs) And they go, they cover up. They get these fig leaves, you know, and we've been doing it ever since, um, you know metaphorically speaking, they were afraid of each other. Okay? Because now they know they're both sinners. And can you really trust a sinner with the deepest part of who you are? Even in marriage, there's a struggle for intimacy. There's a struggle with those deepest secrets of the soul that can take place. And that's, you know, the, the more you can... Um, not live in the fear of them finding out the, the deeper your intimacy will be with your spouse. But the more you live in fear, the farther away you will be from your spouse because you're going to put walls up. Okay, That's what they're doing. They've got these little fig leaves. They're walls. 
that are keeping each other at bay because, you know, that other person might do harm to me. They might hurt me in my most vulnerable places of my soul. But it wasn't just they couldn't trust each other. They were also afraid of God. They heard God coming and they hid in the bushes because they knew they were naked because they had sinned. And so there's fear. Sinners fear one another because they can harm one another. And, and you know, it, it's funny. Sometimes I talk to people about exercising wisdom. And, and it's amazing to me that some people don't grasp the simple fact that we live in a world full of sinners. And you can't do whatever it is you want to do. You have to exercise wisdom precisely because there are people who will do horrible things. You have to be wise about what you do and where you go and when you go there. Okay? We don't live in a world filled with basically good people. That basically good person was only Jesus. Okay? No one had to fear in a negative sense. Jesus. That he would unjustifiably do any harm to them. Night. Night, in a, in a sense, is a symbol for this fear of God and this fear of man. Night is when sinners run rampant and unseen. Think of some of the worst passages in the Scriptures, the worst events. When did most of them take place? Nighttime. When the angels were in Sodom and Gomorrah. What was it? Nighttime. When the Levite Levite was uh, in Benjamin with his concubine, when did all of that take place? Nighttime. There's a reason why uh, coaches and managers of athletes tell them nothing good happens after midnight. What happens on the police blotter almost all the time? Whenever you see an athlete in trouble, when was it? In the early morning, (laughs) so-and-so was night, a symbol of fear for sin run amok. But here in the New Jerusalem, there will be no night. There will be no more opportunity for sin. There will be no one left to sin against you. And, this is even better, you won't want to sin against anyone else. So you'll no longer have to worry and be afraid that someone will talk behind your back. You'll no longer have to worry that someone might scam you out of money. You won't have to worry that someone won't physically take your money or your dignity from you. And you don't have to worry that you might talk behind someone else's back. That you might cheat somebody else. Okay? These are all tied together. We can't see them isolated and apart from one another. And so there will be no one left to fear. There will be no one left who can hurt us. The unrepentant will be cast, as I mentioned, into the lake of fire where they cannot escape. And in in, in other words, this is going to be the safest place that ever existed. There will be no police because there's no need for police. There's not even going to be a serpent 
that crafty old dragon who deceived Eve because he's in the lake of fire too and he can't get out. And so there'll be no one and nothing to disturb this eternal bliss that we shall be a part of if we are in Christ. The repentant will be made perfect in righteousness and would never do us harm. We see this in another way, in a sense, that the gates are not there to keep people out. We actually see they're open. Remember, there's no one to fear. It's not the depravity of the nations that's going to come into the city, but we see it's their glory and honor that comes into the city. And so the, the city that man has dwelt, there's still, I mean, has built, uh, there's still, because of the image of God in them, there's still something good about most cultures. I don't want to say every culture, but most cultures. There are remnants of God's glory in those cultures. And those are the things, those good things will be brought into the city of God for his praise and his glory. Okay. Their positive contributions, their good works are brought before God. They're not obliterated. It's not as if they didn't exist. And so even in the context of grace, we see this notion that God somehow appreciates the feeble efforts. Children, cover your ears. It's like when we take their artwork and put it on their fridge. It ain't Rembrandt. But we love our child. And we recognize what is good in it because we love our child. And we display it. That's what this is like. It's not that our good works are awesome. But they're the works of his children, and so he places them on the fridge, so to speak. Because he deeply loves his children. All right. God puts all of this in writing so that, like my wife, we can peek at the end of the story and knows how it, know how it ends because the middle of the story is a rough ride. And sometimes it looks like it's not going to end well. In this way, we are not overcome with the evil that we see in the world and the evil that we discover in our own hearts. In the New Jerusalem, the fulfillment of so much Old Testament prophecy, we will behold God in all of his glory and we will worship him. In the New Jerusalem... We will walk in perfect righteousness out of hearts that are fully purified by the blood of Christ and the sprinkling of the Spirit. In the New Jerusalem, we will no longer fear anything or anyone. See, the Father, also known as Lord God Almighty, accomplishes this by His Son, also known as the Lamb. And so as we come to Christmas Let's echo Michael Card. Let us celebrate the child who is the light. The light who will shine over us for all eternity. And we will see all we need to see in his light. Let's pray.
Father, I thank You that we have hope. Because there's much around us that fills us with dismay. There's much that tempts us to fear, that tempts us to doubt, that overwhelms us. As we think of uh, physical and emotional um, disabilities and disorders, and as we think about oppressive political regimes, as we think about the wickedness we see on the news. Thank you that you place this before us so that we can keep turning to it, we can keep remembering what it is you have promised to do, that we might hope and that we might direct others to this hope. And so, Father, I, I ask that you really would work these words not just into our heads, but deep into our hearts. So that uh, with the martyrs under the altar, we would too cry out, How long, O Lord, how long? Not because we're afraid it won't happen but because we can't wait for it to happen. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.